Good evening, everyone. Thank you, Trevor. Just a bit of a heads up. Uh, I'm probably going to speak for a little bit longer than I usually do, but we should be finished by about 10 past eight, so I'm asking up front for your patience and also your forgiveness. Uh, of, of all the questions that we ask, and we do ask a lot of questions, but of all the questions that we ask, why is probably the most frequent. And of all the why questions that we ask, many of them are to do with what we see around us. And particularly the things we see around us that we don't understand. The things that are kind of hard to fathom, that are hard to accept. Like why is there so much pain and suffering in our world? Why do some people and some families seem to take more hits than others? Why has there been more loss of life this week at the hands of terrorists in Istanbul or Indonesia or Burkina Faso? Why the refugee crisis is, as Trevor was praying about? Why all those camps? Why? And most of, of those why questions are aimed at God, either directly or indirectly and that's because we believe or, or we know that others say and others declare that that God is loving and God is all-powerful and therefore we wonder well if that's true if that's right well then why does God allow so much suffering why does he appear to stand by and there's so much of it going on in our worlds and in our lives doesn't God care? Doesn't God understand? Surely God has the ability to intervene. God could do something. And yet, he often seems to be passive. God appears to be actively inactive. And that's confusing for many people today. It, it's frustrating. It's a paradox. It's been a, it's been a month since our last installment in this series, Paradoxology, which has kind of been sparked by this book. And therefore, let me, uh, if you're just visiting or you haven't been here for a while, let me just kind of press refresh and, and bring you up to speed with the journey so far. A, a paradox is a statement or, or a proposition that seems self-contradictory or absurd, but in reality expresses a possible truth. A God who is actively inactive. It's a paradox. Or a paradox is a person or a situation or a thing that combines contradictory features and qualities. And when it comes to God, we have, we've been discovering that there are a, a number of paradoxes that are not easy to get your head around. And so we have thought about a God who needs nothing and yet demands everything. Or a God who is omnipresent, a God who is everywhere, and yet at times feels so distant, like a million miles away. Or what about a God who is terribly compassionate? He's gracious and he's compassionate, and yet as we saw in the story of Joshua, he sanctions the annihilation of entire people groups and cities. Compassion, wrath, it's a paradox. 
And so we've been wrestling with, with those during this series. But the reason for doing this, there is a purpose. The reason for acknowledging these paradoxes and grappling with them rather than denying them or rather than saying they don't exist, because they do. The reason for doing it is to gain a better understanding of God, which in turn will hopefully inspire us to, to greater worship, to truer worship, that as a result of engaging with these paradoxes, we actually will lift our hearts and lift our voices in praise, which kind of takes us to the second part of this made-up title for this series, Doxology, because a doxology is an expression of praise to God. And so paradoxology, we reflect, we consider, we explore, and then in response to all of that, we worship. So back to this evening's paradox. The God who is actively inactive in, in the face in the midst of so much suffering. Now, the problem of suffering is and has been one of the most enduring questions humanity's had to struggle with. And let's be honest, it's also one of the, the main reasons why so many people object to a belief in God. The apparent absence of God at key moments both in world history and in our own personal histories, lies at the heart of many people's rejection of God. The question is, to quote the title of Philip Yancey's brilliant book that I would recommend everyone to read, where is God when it hurts? Where is he? And we can't and we mustn't shy away from this problem and this paradox because all of us will find ourselves confronted by it at some level as we sit on a hospital ward, or as we sit in front of our TVs. But the problem of suffering is not unique to Christianity, and, and, and this is where I kind of want to start, because every faith, every system of thought is exposed to the problem of suffering and, and tries to address it and answer it in some way. And therefore, before we kind of look at a Christian reaction, let, let's briefly mention three relatively common ways of resolving the problem of suffering from a Hindu, from a Buddhist, and from an atheist perspective. At the heart of, of Hinduism is the idea of karma, where the good deeds and the bad deeds that are performed by human beings in the present will determine the quality of life both now and in future births. And so the suffering experienced now is seen as punishment for the bad things done in previous lives. And so, for example, and this is quite an extreme example, but it's true, but in the, for example, in karmic thinking, it looks at a starving child in a Brazilian favela, in a Brazilian slum, and thinks, do you know something? That could be, that might be Adolf Hitler, reincarnated who's now enduring punishment and suffering for the atrocities that he perpetrated in a previous life. It's a tough perspective to hold that. Because how, how do you prove who did what in a previous life? Plus, there, there's no reason to help anyone suffering in this life if you simply believe that they're being punished for something they did in a previous life. 
And so one way of dealing with suffering in Hinduism is to say it's just bad karma. Or Buddhism offers its own approach. Many of you will know that suffering is kind of central to the teaching of Buddhism. The four noble truths of Buddhism are these. The truth of suffering, the truth of the origin of suffering, the truth of the cessation of suffering, and the truth of the pathway to the cessation of suffering. So suffering, from a Buddhist point of view, is the central human problem. And for a Buddhist, it comes about because there is a fundamental mismatch between what we desire and what we achieve and receive. And therefore, the solution is simple. What you've got to do is get rid of desires. Because then there will be no mismatch. And thus, you will not experience suffering. And so the implication is you desensitize yourself. You detach yourself from this world. The ultimate aim in Buddhism is nirvana which literally means extinguishment, the place where desires are finally snuffed out. And therefore, in Buddhism, suffering is the result of bad desires. And finally, atheism, where really suffering is just the result of bad luck. Let me quote Richard Dawkins from his book, River Out of Eden. If the universe were just electrons and selfish genes, meaningless tragedies are exactly what we should expect, along with equally meaningless good fortune. Such a universe would be neither good nor evil in intention. In a universe of blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt, other people are just going to get lucky. And you won't find any rhyme or reason nor any justice. So according to Dawkins and others, it's just statistically unfortunate if bad things happen to you, so you might as well cross your fingers and hope they don't. So bad luck, bad karma, bad desires. But how how do Christians process it? How do we reconcile suffering with a belief in a powerful, all-loving God? who seems passive, actively inactive at times. Now, I realize, as with all these paradoxes, that this is huge and complex, and lots of good books have been written into it. Tim Keller's book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, is brilliant. The classic of C.S. Lewis, The Problem of Pain, or the book by Alistair McGrath, Suffering and God. But it's to the book of Job, I want to turn, as you would expect me to. And it's 42 chapters, and we're going to work our way verse by verse through all 42. No. But we're going, to, we're going to look at the book of Job, which addresses this very problem. If you want to turn it, you can, but I'm, I'm, I'm going to be kind of t- like dipping in and dipping out. But the narrative of this book homes in, in the, on the life of a good man. An upright man. He's a prosperous man. He's a man of character. He's a man who's held in high regard. But the narrative, as we're introduced, kind of zooms out a little bit. And it reveals another layer of reality regarding what's taking place in the spiritual realm, where in a kind of courtroom-type environment, Satan lays down a challenge to God. And the challenge is this. He argues that Job's devotion to God is based purely on the fact that Job's got an easy life, pain-free, suffering-free. 
Job doesn't really love God. He just loves the life that God has given him. That, that, that's, that's Satan's perspective. And so in response to this challenge a deal is struck, Job's going to be the test case. Despite the evident challenge to God's authority, God permits Satan to bring suffering into Job's life. But he says this, everything he has is in your hands, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. And so the stage is set. And the question is raised that runs throughout the rest of this book, all 42 chapters, will Job honor, will he continue to honor and worship God when everything is taken from him, when he suffers, or will he curse God to his face? And so Satan goes off. And he destroys Job's wealth and his family in a series of freak accidents. But Job, unaware of this deal that has been struck behind the scenes, responds, and how challenging is this? And you all know this verse. How challenging and profound is this to be able to say, in the face of pain and suffering, Naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked I will depart. The Lord gave. The Lord's taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. It's a deeply inspiring declaration of confidence and trust in the face of extreme pain and suffering. It's not about denial. It's not about defeatism. It's not about bad anything. This is a commitment to continue to trust God despite his circumstances. Life, as far as Job is concerned, is a gift. And so Job will continue to love and bless God for who he is, not for what he gives, but for who he is. But whenever Job says this, it launches phase two of the test. Satan is now given permission to affect Job physically, but he must spare his life. And that happens. And so Job comes out in these terrible boils from head to foot, and he grabs a piece of broken pottery and he starts scratching away at his skin. And then what follows is this prolonged conversation, and some would say a torturous dialogue, between Job and his three friends. As they wrestle with the question, why? Why? But before we get to that, the kind of introduction to this book, the first chapter and a half, resolves some issues for us but also realizes a whole bunch of others. But the first thing to say that we're clearly told is this, God is in control. And if, if you are part of the Windsor family, this has been a recurring theme recently. God is in control. God is portrayed as the king of the universe. He's portrayed as the rightful ruler of heaven and earth. Even Satan, the personification of evil. Yes, he asked to come and he asked to ask God permission to carry out his activity. And so a book that addresses the problem of suffering 
doesn't back away from the fact, yeah, there is suffering, but you know something? God is in control. There's no sense of the universe being a kind of cosmic lottery filled with outrageous fortune or misfortune. God's in control. Including of the suffering. The second thing we learn is that, that all suffering is not deserved. Job's not being punished for the things he's done or the things he hasn't done. The text is really clear. Job is described as blameless. He's described as a man of intense integrity, yet he suffers. It's a bit like the, the story of the blind man who meets Jesus' disciples in John 9, and they ask the question that everybody's discussing. Is this man's suffering deserved because he sinned? Or his parents sinned? Jesus replies, neither this man nor his parents sinned. And so the karmic equation found in Hinduism and in many other Eastern philosophies suggesting that current suffering is the direct result of previous personal sin, that that's not supported by the Bible's teaching. It is true that at a kind of macro level, suffering is, in general, is the result of sin, but it doesn't apply at a micro level. The whole world is being damaged, but its effects are not spread according to what each person deserves. And so the innocent, as much as the guilty, are affected by sin and by its far-reaching consequences. So first of all, God is in control, that's clear. Secondly, suffering is not deserved. All suffering is not deserved. And the third thing we see, and this is, this is unsettling, is that God allows suffering to happen to an innocent person. And so Satan is permitted to disrupt Job's life. And that throws us back to this classic paradox. Does suffering continue because God's not all-powerful? Or because God's not all-loving? Well, the book of Job clearly states that God is all-powerful. Satan can do nothing without God's permission. So the question is, is God all-loving? Can we honestly continue to believe in a loving God when he allows such extreme suffering simply to win a divine bet or wager? Well, as the story unfolds, we see there's more at stake than just a cruel test or a confusing gamble. And so the book of Job challenges, and I know these are big, broad-stroke comments I'm making, but the book of Job challenges the premise of the paradox that God is either too weak to stop suffering or too mean to bother to do so. And what this book does, and acknowledging this is difficult and acknowledging this is not easy, and I know it's hard, but this book asserts that there are circumstances and there are times and there are occasions when an all-powerful, all-loving God allows suffering. And I've said that the, the bulk of the book is, is a record of these endless visits and these lectures by Job's three friends who come out with what will prove to be, it would seem, as many commentators say, a pile of theological and philosophical nonsense. And basically, they all assume that if you sin, you will suffer. And if you suffer, it's because you have sinned. That's effectively what they say. 
And it goes on, and it goes on page after page. And if nothing else, what you can't accuse the Bible of doing is ignoring the issue. But you know what? It makes the book, or it makes a large chunk of it, 30 plus chapters of it, really difficult to read. How many of us have set out reading Job? And after about three, four, five chapters, you just give up. You've lost the will to live. But you know something? Maybe that's the point. Perhaps the exasperating experience of reading the book of Job's intentional. Possibly the aim is to deliberately frustrate readers. And finding Job's so-called friends incredibly annoying maybe acts as a warning not to make the same mistakes. So how does this paradox play out? Well, before we, we get there, Let me mention the classic way that Christians have sought to resolve the problem of suffering, which is, and, and again, many of you will know this, God gives us freedom of choice. And the exercise of that freedom has led to all the suffering there is in the world. Once we choose to do our own thing, once we choose to rebel against God, well then, of course, there are consequences. God is in control. He's still in control, but he's given us space to exercise our freedom, and therefore, do you know what? We're just reaping what was sown. And therefore, we live in a world that was never as God originally intended it to be, nor how it will eventually wind up. And the Bible is clear, and the Bible is explicit, and teaches that one day, someday, God's going to call time, and God's going to eradicate all evil, and he's going to eradicate all suffering forever. But the end of suffering also spells the end of opportunity. Because once that day comes, the chance to change our allegiances are gone. And so God waits for us to recognize and worship him. As we saw in the Joshua paradox, God's endless patience is not inactivity. God's endless patience is mercy. Mankind still has the opportunity to repent and seek forgiveness before it's too late. But although that is a kind of big picture overview of the Bible, and it is helpful to see it in those terms, and it is right to see it in those terms as, re as we wrestle with the reality of suffering. Now, yes, one day, one day it'll be finished, it'll be done away with, but once that day comes, the end of opportunity comes as well. But you know what the fascinating thing about Job is? In this 42-chapter book, which is entirely focused on the problem of suffering, that particular line of reasoning doesn't even get a look in. Doesn't even get a look in. God never gives Job any explanation about why he's going through what he's going through. No mention of free will in there. No mention of consequences and all of that. But what Job does get is he gets an audience with God. And he seeks an audience with God precisely because his suffering has not dampened his belief in a personal and powerful God. Despite everything that has happened to Job, which he knows is undeserved, Job's belief in God has not diminished one single bit. And so he seeks an audience with God because he wants to meet with God despite all that has happened to him. And he wants to state his side of the argument, so to speak. 
And Job here models for us what we ought to do whenever we have a case against God. We've got to bring it to him just like numerous writers of the Psalms did. Because here's the point, here's the issue. We don't resolve a problem with God anywhere else other than with God himself. So Job says, if only I knew where to find him, if only I could go to his dwelling, I would state my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. But as we all know, whenever Job does get that audience with God, when he finally gets his chance to address God, he doesn't raise any questions. He doesn't make any arguments. When Job finds himself in God's presence, he becomes more inclined to listen than to speak. In fact, he becomes completely silent as Job asks, or as God asks Job, a stream of questions. You see, Job probably thought, listen, I've got so many questions. I'm going to be the one asking the questions, but it turns out that God is the one who asks the questions. Question after question after question. But what is the point? Let me just read some of those questions for you. And again, you're familiar with this. This isn't from Job 38, if you do want to turn it. But this is whenever Job gets that audience with God. He comes thinking, I'm going to ask all these questions. And here's what God says to him. Brace yourself like a man, Job. Because I have some questions for you. And you must answer them. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you know so much. Who determines the earth's dimensions and stretched out the surveying line? What supports the earth's foundations? Who laid its cornerstone? Who kept the sea inside its boundaries as it burst from the womb? Have you ever commanded the morning to appear? Caused the dawn to rise in the east? Have you made daylight spread to the ends of the earth to bring an end to the night's wickedness? Job, do you know where the gates of death are located? Have you seen the gates of utter gloom? Job, do you realize the extent of the earth? Tell me about it if you know. Where does light come from? Where does the darkness go? Have you visited the storehouses of the snow or seen the storehouses of hail? Who created a channel for the torrents of rain? Who laid out the path for the lightning? Who makes the rain fall in barren land in a desert where no one lives? Who sends rain to satisfy the parched ground? Does the rain have a father? Who gives birth to the Jew, Job? D-E-W, the way. Who is the mother of the ice? Who gives birth to the frost from the heavens? For the water turns to ice as hard as rock and the surface of the water freezes. Do you know the laws of the universe, Job? Can you use them to regulate the earth? Can you shout to the clouds and make it rain? Can you make lightning appear? And so it goes on. What's the point? What's the point? It's clearly not to shut him up. It's clearly not to put Job down. The purpose it appears is to help Job see something of the wonder of the world, to experience a sense of intense awe. Job, you see, in his conversation with God, his dialogue with God, a one-way dialogue as it turns out, Job, in that dialogue, doesn't discover God's perspective on suffering, but what he does discover is God's perspective on the whole world. And so as a result, as a result, Job discovers more of and more about God. And he says, listen, my ears have heard of you, but now I've seen you. 
And he finds himself trusting God better. He says, I know, God, you can do anything. And no one can stop you. And you see, the thing about God's questions to Job are that they don't deny the reality of the world. They don't undermine the reality of suffering. But rather, they act like a kind of mental version of a defibrillator, shocking the brain out of self and introspection and forcing Job and us to see, listen, here is your true place in the universe that I have created. And so what God does is he helps Job to reflect upon and revel in the sheer magnitude and complexities of God's world and God's nature. And he doesn't reprimand Job. He doesn't tell him, listen, mute your emotions. But what he does say is he says, Job, expand your vision. Lift your eyes, Job. You're so right naked you came from your mother's womb. Naked you will depart. I give and I take away. And what is your response, Job, to be? Praise. Blessed be your name. Job was looking for answers. But what he was confronted with was a whole other set of questions that instill in Job this reverent, awed appreciation of God's wisdom and God's power and God's majesty. And so as the rest of Scripture teaches us, it's the fear of the Lord. It's a reverent fear of the Lord that is the beginning of wisdom. And so the only answer, and I know this doesn't please or satisfy everyone, but you know the only answer to the problem of suffering that you find in the book of the Bible that deals with the problem of suffering, it's not an answer. It's a challenge. It's a challenge to reflect on and refocus on the Creator God, whose power and whose skill and whose wisdom is visible all around us. It's a challenge for us in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of our pain, in the midst of our darkness. A challenge, can I stand in awe of the one who knows so much better? Can I stand and gaze in wonder at the God of the universe who can, to quote Job, do anything? No one can stop him. The challenge is to see God for who he is. And then as we see God for who he is, as our vision of God is expanded, as we find the creator God, then we learn to trust him with our lives, no matter what. And so Job is drawn closer to the all-powerful, loving God. But you know, the cost of that journey was high. And at the end of the book, God silences the three friends. And he does effectively denounce their rhetoric as rubbish. But he commends Job. And the reason he commends Job is because of his humble response and worship to the greatness of God. And so what we find is a God who's willing to allow his servant to suffer, 
to allow his servant to be tested to see, can a human being actually love God for who he is or only for what he provides? Can anyone still really trust and worship God even if they lose everything? Well, the book of Job's answer to that is yes. And I don't say this lightly. But Job's story is there to encourage us that when life is hard and when suffering is real and when God feels distant and God feels passive, we can find a way through. We can find a way through with our faith intact, but you know the only way we're going to do that is if and as we fix our eyes on God as opposed to on our circumstances, which is always easier said than done. But just the last thing, because I'm conscious that we've sat around this table. And so let me just draw attention to Jesus. Because this paradox is brought to head in his life and in his death and in his resurrection. Because on the cross, an innocent and a blameless suffers through no fault of his own. What Job was asked to do, involuntarily Jesus volunteered to do. He gave up his life. And so God allowed suffering on a cosmic scale in order to buy our freedom. And ultimately, God has not been passive about evil and pain and suffering in our world. He has actively submitted himself to suffer on our behalf. And so because of Jesus, as I've said earlier, the sin and suffering of this world will one day be finally and fully resolved And so the point in that is this, when we suffer, and we will, and some do more than others, but when we suffer, we are not further away from God, but rather we're drawn closer to the one who suffered for us. And when we reach out to those who suffer, then we are becoming more like God. And so the Job paradox, so to speak, teaches us to look up, expand your vision, David. Find and worship the creator God who is able, who's reliable, who's vast, and who's wise enough to be trusted now, even in the dark times. And so the question is, can I say this? Can any of us say this? God, you give, you've given us life. You take away, but I'm still going to bless your name. 